If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Sometimes Jane Austen is used as a shorthand to mean something prim, proper, um, slightly frivolous, quintessentially British, you know, Jane Austen style. People think of tea room news, don't they? No! This is biting social satire. That was Lucy Worsley on how she'd like her new biography of Jane Austen to change how we see the novelist. Perhaps today in different ways we put the Tudor centre stage and we think they're wonderful and powerful and uh, go-getting, but I think the reality in the sense is, is really quite different. And that was Stephen Olford talking about Tudor London. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of June 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This year marks a bicentenary of the death of Jane Austen, one of Britain's best-known novelists, whose work offers a fascinating window into aspects of Georgian society. Jane's life has now been explored in a new biography by the popular historian and broadcaster Lucy Worsley, who has also presented a BBC documentary about the writer. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, met up with Lucy recently to find out more. Why did you decide to tell this story with a focus on her domestic life? (laughs) Ah, Well, firstly, because I love Jane Austen and I think that she's the greatest human being that ever lived. And secondly, because I'm really interested in the history of houses and homes. Okay. So I was able to combine two things that I like. I've always worked as a curator in historic houses of one kind or another, from the small to the pretty enormous. We're sitting here in Hampton Court Palace (laughs) at this very moment. And I really like the way that if you look at somebody's home, you can learn stuff about them that you can't necessarily learn in any other way. And Jane Austen, is she's notoriously difficult to pin down. She's a very sort of elusive, slippery character. So I thought that one way to have a go would be to go in through the buildings. And, and quite a lot of them survive. So I went on this wonderful road trip. <laughs> it's very cool, yes. I mean, you mentioned there that she's elusive. Mm. What's the best source that we have for finding out more about what she thought and what her interior life was like, I suppose? Well... There's the letters. Her let- many of her letters survive. Many of them were destroyed by her sister. Uh, <laughs> I think because she could be so desperately rude about <laughs> other people. Oh, she could be nasty. Um, but hundreds of thousands of, of words survive in her letters. 
but this source is problematic because people have looked at, read them and said, well, you know, there's nothing here. They're all about clothes. They're all about cooking. Well, where are her views on the French Revolution? These letters are useless. Actually, they're not. If you read them with different questions in your mind, then they tell you different things. Mm. We'll come back to the letters later. Mm. For the time being, what do we know of the home life into which she was born? Well, she, um, the Austin family were what's called pseudo-gentry. And I, I quite like this, impress- this, this word. It gives you quite a good impression that they, they wanted to be members of the landed gentry. And some of them were. There were very rich, established people in their wider family. But the, the Jane's particular Austens didn't have quite enough money to be proper men. They didn't have land. They didn't have land. So they were, they were aspiring to a lifestyle that they couldn't really afford. And that means a certain amount of struggle and keeping up appearances and make do and mend. And um, one thing that happened to Jane Austen quite a lot is that she would go to stay with uh, rich relatives in their houses. So she was, she was the outsider. And uh, in one of the houses where she would go to say, stay, she made friends with the governess, for, for, for example, which I think is quite telling. And I think that once you know this about her life, you read her books in a different way. And they, they are, you know, even Lizzie Bennet, who's the heroine of Pride and Prejudice, she's an outsider going into the homes of rich people and not liking what she saw there. Mm. She's obviously someone who talks a lot about the female experience, but this was quite a male household, it feels like, that she was in when she was a young girl, I suppose. Is that yes, she, she, she grew up in a very masculine environment with a lot of boys around. But within the family, she made a family of her own with her sister, Cassandra, mm. I think. And the two of them were sometimes sent away from home to, uh, to school. That's happened on a couple of occasions. And um, I think it's quite important to realise that the Georgians had a slightly definition of what a family was. It wasn't the nuclear family of mum, dad, two kids, though in the Austin's case it was mum, dad, eight kids. And um, Georgian children were brought up by a tribe, if you like, and uh, the the role of parenting wasn't just the job of the biological parents. So uh, there were other ways in which Jane could get feminine influence through friends and in later life herself as an aunt uh, and as a mentor, she would she would mother despite not having children of her own. Mm. And one of the things I love about her stories is that actually um, a lot of the, the people who do the best mothering are the aunts, the mentors, the older friends. They're not necessarily the biological mothers. Mm. What was her relationship like with her biological mother? Well, some people would interpret this in different ways because the sources are sort of endlessly flexible and fascinating. But I think it was difficult. And I'm quite attracted to this idea that Jane was amongst one of the 5% of babies who spent longer than 43 weeks in the womb. They're they're sometimes called late babies, babies who took their time coming out into the world. And uh, we, we think this because of sources from the family at the time. They said she's a month later than we thought. And also a late baby often has a very long, thin body because it goes on growing for longer than you would expect in the womb. And Jane had a very long, thin body. If you believe the evidence that's um, given in the form of a a pelisse, which is a long, loose overcoat that survives, that's quite closely associated with her, if that really was her overcoat, then she had an extremely long, thin body. Mm -hmm. And another thing that's often said about these late 
babies is that they have a difficult relationship with their mothers. Okay, mm. that is interesting. Um, other than her sister, who was she closest to, or is that a ridiculous question? <laughs> I don't think it's a ridiculous <laughs> question. No, um, her father was a an exceptional man, George Austin, and he was an exceptional man in that he liked witty women. Now, if you're a uh, you're conventional Georgian gentleman, he does not like a witty woman. He feels threatened by her. He thinks this is wrong. But George Austin, A, loved novels. This is quite an unusual thing to do. Mm. Uh, he liked reading the slightly ridiculous, melodramatic Gothic novels of, of the time. And B, he encouraged his daughter to become a writer. Mm. Now, he didn't teach her classics. That would have been going too far. She didn't get to learn any Latin or Greek. But he did buy her paper. He bought her a writing desk. He acted as her first literary agent. Not particularly successfully, <laughs> it has to be said. He did a rather poor job of that. But, hey, that was, that was a, a wonderful gift that he gave her. He believed in her. Mm. Because that desk was important because it was something that was hers and she could keep stuff private in. Exactly, yes. Um, all well-off Georgians would have carried around with them a sort of a little uh, a box for secrets, a little locked writing case in which they would have kept their money and their uh, perhaps things like uh, jewels. And in Jane's case, what turned out to be priceless manuscripts. Mm. Um, one of the sort of glimpses into some of the problems that she had with her semi-itinerant lifestyle, living in a lot of places, going on a lot of visits to relatives, is that at one point her writing desk accidentally got, gets put into the wrong carriage at a coaching inn and it's sent off to the West Indies. Oh my goodness, they only just get it back in time. Uh, and this is one of the drawbacks to being a, a Georgian pseudo-gentry lady without a home of your own. These things are going to happen to you. Mm. What do we know of the environment in which this desk existed? Do we know much about what the house would have been like? Five years ago, we would have said, no, we don't know much about Stephen Directory. But there's been this fantastic and volunteer-led archaeological project over the last few years to excavate the site. So if you go there, there's just a field. And you often see cars parked by the hedge with people looking sadly into this field, wanting to see the site where it all began. But... Um, a wonderful team led by a lady called Debbie Charlton have investigated it and they've discovered quite a lot about the layout of the house through doing this that wasn't known before. And it was very much, I think what they have overturned is this idea that it was a lovely country house where people had balls and tea parties of the type that you might see in the feature film of Northanger Abbey. It wasn't like that. It was a farmhouse. It was at the centre of a farm. It was also a boarding school because one of the things the Austin did was uh, uh, run a school to get extra money. And it was also Mr Austin's place of work as the local clergyman. So there's a lot of different economic activities going on within this um, single place. Mm. And there's a tension throughout her life about the idea of how much she worked. Like the idea of domestic work being work seems to be something that historians have faintly disagreed about in the past. Is that fair to say, do you think? Yes, the issue of what constitutes work is a really vexed issue. And at the time, uh, well-off Georgian ladies weren't supposed to work. They were supposed to do um, improving activities, which might have included sewing clothes for poor people or embroidering shirts for their brothers or perhaps playing the piano or reading improving books or in other ways making themselves more marriageable, getting their accomplishments. Um, even at the time, though, some people were saying, this is a waste of time. What you need to be doing is cultivating your, your mind, your virtue. You don't need to be faffing around with embroidery. Um, so, but what, what that sort of overlooks is the, 
the definition of work that we might understand. And if you were a Georgian lady who was well off, then you might also have to secretly carry out actual work, you know, things like cooking and shopping and cleaning and also supervising contract labour to do those things. So there's a big role of the Georgian um, lady, which is what we would call line managing staff. And that was something that they were sort of expected to do, almost like a swan swimming along with its little feet paddling really hard under the water. Yeah, <laughs> almost naturally, like it didn't count as actual work because it's something you just did. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So the, the nature of work is, is quite tricky. What I think Jane Austen felt that she could not do, and it seems like a really obvious thing to us that she should have done, she could not go out and get a job as a governess, for example, because she would have felt that was socially inappropriate. Her family would not have liked that. And she was financially dependent on her family pretty much for the whole of her life. Mm. Changing subject slightly, I'm interested in the idea of Austen as a historian. She wrote about history, didn't she, when she was quite young. Mm. What do we know about her view of history from that? (laughs) One of the things that really gets overlooked are Jane Austen's early writings that are fantastically bonkers. And she wrote all these crazy stories in which people go mad and kill each other and there's lots of violence and, oh, incredibly glamorous, exciting, bonkers stuff is going on. And she also wrote her famous spoof history book. Uh, And that's because she'd read history textbooks and she thought, this is quite boring and there aren't any ladies in the story. I want more ladies. And uh, she described history... In Northanger Abbey, she has a a character describe history as the wars between kings and popes and the occasional pestilence. Well, Jane decided, I'm going to put this right. So she wrote a very chatty, funny, opinionated, um, character-driven history of England in which she gives the most amazingly (laughs) strong views on the, the qualities of the different kings and queens. So, for example, she loves Mary, Queen of Scots. She thinks she's a doomed romantic uh charismatic character and controversially perhaps she hates queen elizabeth the first because she cuts off the head of mary mm. queen of scots and another sort of little window into the possible relationship between jane austen and her mother is that the two of them seem to have sat for little illustrative portraits of mary queen of scots and of elizabeth the first that jane's sister cassandra did And Mary, Queen of Scots, if she is really Jane, then she's young and beautiful and very much a heroine. And Jane's mother, if she really is Elizabeth I, well, she's a mean old hag. Talking about her personal life then, um, what's your take on Tom Lefroy and her relationship with him Um, and what it shows us about her, I suppose? Well, Tom Tom Lefroy, in many biographies of Jane Austen, is the man who broke her heart when she was 21. He was a a dashing Irish law student who came into Hampshire for a holiday, flirted with Jane outrageously over over this New Year holidays. They danced at balls and then he left. And uh, she wrote some letters to her sister describing, on the surface, describing how upsetting this was. She talks about tears running and it's all over and romance is doomed. But actually, she was joking. That's... (laughs) That is what's really sort of sort of um, double-edged about everything that Jane Austen ever wrote. You can read it in different ways. And what I think she was doing in these letters is spoofing the conventions of romantic novels. Because, of course, in romantic novels, the heroine is always in tears and she's always being abandoned by a man. Uh, and another piece of evidence that's sometimes presented in support of this idea that she had a heartbroken 
is that she wrote out in uh, her manuscript collection of songs that she kept, a song about an Irishman. If you just glance at it, it looks like it's a sort of wistful love song about this wonderful Irishman. It isn't. It's a comic song. And it was, in fact, written for a comedic tenor who was Irish. And it is the song all builds up to his very high C that he can do. And the song is actually a competition between all the races of the world. We've got the Turks, the Italians, the French. Who's the best lover? Well, it's the Irish. It's not a wistful song of love for Irish, Tom. It's just a great big joke. Okay. And I think this is important because if you believe that she had her heart broken, then it makes her sort of a passenger in the rest of her life. You know, she's become damaged. Mm. She's bitter. She's a spinster. Actually, she was much more in control of things than you might otherwise think. Mm. Are there other ways in which our common perception of her personality is incorrect? Mm. Well, I don't know, because she's she's a well-known figure and there have been almost as many different interpretations of her as there are historians. So the Victorians, I would say that every age gets the Jane Austen that it deserves. So the Victorians wanted to find and did find a good little woman who was a a kind sister and a loving daughter and an excellent aunt who produced her books sort of by accident, you know, with no apparent effort, didn't really know what she was doing. But then as you get into the 20th century, people have looked for and they have found a much more passionate, aggressive, economically aware, professional writer. That's a big stream of thought that's come out recently. And what I would say, I, I, I have made Jane Austen into a feminist. I have looked for what I wanted to find. I wanted to find a feminist and I have found one. I admit that's possibly not very objective of me, but I put my cards on the table. Mm. She makes her entrance onto the social scene. Um, what was that experience like for her? Was that an exciting thing to happen? Did she enjoy that? Mm. Well, it was called making an entrance into the world. You reach marriageable age and you're put onto the marriage market by your parents. You're thrust out there into the world. Marry my daughter. She's available. And I guess the excitement and the pleasure of that comes from knowing this is the point in your life that you have the most power. Because you have, you're, you're fresh to the market. You have the power perhaps to say no to valuable suitors. So that's the good part about it. The bad part about it is that it's risky. It might not go well for you. You might not get snapped up. Two seasons later, you're not quite the thing that you were. Your, your economic value had dropped a bit. And so your, your ability to catch a man who will support you in the style to which you are accustomed will forever decline as you move into what Jane Austen calls the years of danger. So it was, it was both scary and exciting then, I suppose. I think so, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. what's beneath the whole of, um, you know, the froth of Jane Austen novels, are cold-hearted economic decisions. Mm, yes. How much is economics a key part in making her feel unsettled throughout her life? Oh, I think it's essential. I think it's essential. This is, this is the key thing that I have learned by visiting her houses, realising how non-luxurious they were, mm. how makeshift, how temporary some of these arrangements that she had were. And she was always living on somebody else's terms, you know, as a daughter and then as a... Um, as a sister, because her bro- after her father died, her brothers would give charitable gifts. So there's no kind of continuity of income here. Mm. Are the brothers going to cough up this month? Uh, you can see the the insecurity of that. And in the circumstances, just how much might, how attractive it might be to think, my goodness, maybe I can earn some money for myself as a writer. But the tragic thing is that her lifetime earnings 
as a novelist were £650. Now, that was, that was quite a lot compared with her pocket money, which was £20 a year. OK, so it is a big step change. But for a Georgian professional man like a solicitor, £650 is six months' income. <laughs> and that was her whole life. Yes, that's yeah, her lifetime yeah. achievement, six months' income for a solicitor. Going back to her domestic life, is it fair to say that the move away from the family home to Bath was a defining episode in that? Mm, that's a very good question. It's tempting to think so. It's tempting to think uh, that when her father decided, when she was 25, he was going to up sticks and move Jane to Bath against her will, that she felt herself to be more than ever the prisoner of circumstance. There is an argument that when she was in Bath, which has traditionally been seen as a very sort of dry, desperate, gloomy period for her writing. Actually, she didn't do any writing because she was having too much fun and that hasn't been recorded. I will put that view just out there. (laughs) But um, you can see that it didn't suit her because there's a lot of socialising involved. The labour of the land that she had had to do in uh, Hampshire in terms of helping in the dairy, perhaps helping to process food, that sort of thing. Mm. Didn't have to do that in the urban society of Bath. But I see it as being replaced by a different kind of labour, which is the social labour of sucking up to rich people in order to get legacies or else hunting for a husband. And I don't get the sense that Jane was particularly interested in that. Mm. We should talk about the idea that you explore in the book where she doesn't believe that a man can give you all the happiness Mm. that you need, which really interests me because that kind of questions some of our, I guess, preconceptions about it. How can we tell that from her books and how does it reflect on her real experiences, I suppose? Okay, let me say this is a controversial (laughs) theory. Not everybody's going to go with this, but like with Shakespeare, you can look at Jane Austen's works and you can read what you want to see. You can see many different interpretations. And there's definitely an argument, which I quite like, which is that the books are not about finding a man. And you would think that if you were to watch any feature film. You might think that after you read it first time as a teenager. You think these are romances. But actually, what they could really be about is the heroine's search for a home, bricks and mortar, a place of safety, a place of security. And there are key scenes and moments where you perhaps might expect there to be more kissing, more love, more romance. But actually, the heroine's saying, ha, got the house. The ending of Mansfield Park, for example. At the end of Mansfield Park, uh, there's the heroine, Fanny. There's the hero, Edmund. You never actually see him falling in love with her. It's like, you can argue, okay, this is controversial. You can argue that it's like Jane Austen can't be bothered to describe that. And the last line of the book is, she had her heart's desire, a lovely little parsonage. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. It's a really interesting take on it, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Parsonages are important. Obviously, of all the buildings... They seem to be the one that you say that comes up the most, yes. or she describes the most, certainly. Yes, I think she gives the fullest descriptions of parsonages because that was a building style that she was very, very comfortable with, mm. having grown up in them and having um, three clergymen amongst her immediate relatives, a huge number of clergymen amongst her near, near relatives. But just on the wanting a parsonage point, another character in Pride and Prejudice does that very clearly. She marries for the parsonage. Mm. And I must say, because it would be wrong to give you the impression that it's all about marrying for the parsonage, that the heroine of that story doesn't think that she should have done it. She thinks that you should marry for love. But that's why the book is interesting, because there are different views being expressed within it, I suppose. And, yes, your clergyman's daughter, like like Jane Austen and many other clergymen, like the Brontes too, is a very chameleon-like character 
You might one day be going into the village and dispersing charity. Might the next day be dancing with a nobleman at the local country house. Mm. So again, somebody who slips through society and perhaps sees things. Yeah. She then moves to Southampton. Of the properties there, which do you think had the biggest impact? Uh, I really see Southampton as the nadir of Mm. her life. She'd been moved there by her brother, Frank, who had got married. It sounds like a bad thing to do. He got married. He was going to go off to sea again. And he wanted some babysitters for his wife. So he moved in his mother and his two uh, unmarried sisters into this sort of female menage in Southampton. Funny enough, it didn't work out. <laughs> his wife did not want to live with her mother-in-law and the two sisters. And so the wife scarpered and then they couldn't quite afford the rent on the house and uh, it didn't go particularly well for them. Um, but I did spot that there were some professional novelists working in Southampton at that time. And I, I got, an, well, I just wonder if Jane maybe met them on the, the Southampton spinster social scene because it was while she was living in Southampton that she made a big decision, which was to write more aggressively to the publisher who'd failed to publish her work so far and to say, come on, I want my copyright back. I want to get published. And I think maybe it was that combination of bad things happening that made her take a more firm step towards getting into print. Mm. The idea of a circle of spinsters, in inverted commas, is Mm. interesting when we talk about the idea of letters having double meanings and her writing having double meanings. In what ways was she talking to them, do you think, in her books? There's an excellent literary scholar who has uh, pointed out that the, the letters that Jane Austen wrote were, were double-voiced, that they could be read in two different ways. Because very often she was writing to a female friend or a sister, um, and the letter would traditionally have been opened by the recipient and uh, read out to the assembled family circle over the breakfast table. So the letters are often written um, in bullet points, like so that what's Jane got to say? Oh, she got this, that, this, that, and the other. Uh, And uh, (laughs) so they were for public consumption, and yet also they could have hidden meanings Mm. within them. Uh, That's what's meant by the double voice, one for the whole of the breakfast circle party, one for just the recipient. And sometimes they can express things like um, aggression, frustration, uh, just by the way that topics are combined and by the way that mad things are placed next to each other. That's a way of saying, oh, life is bonkers, isn't it? By talking about cucumbers and then ink and then the price of bread and then my new dress and then he said this and then he said that. And you get the sense of the triviality, the repetitiveness, and yet the strong passions within their lives, I think, by reading the letters. Yes, and also making small events into big, big ones. ones. Yes, yes. yes. You, you, well, I guess I guess you got to you got to look for the personal is the political, isn't it? And if your life consists of household work, then you're going to be very familiar with the the politics of household work. And all women had known that through the centuries. It was just that Jane Austen made them into a form of art for the first time. Mm. And it also challenges the idea that hers was an event. I forget the exact phrasing. But a life without events. Event. Yes, yes, a life without event. What a what a definition of an eventful that person had it was her brother actually he thought if there were no there were no actual battles then it was a life without event well there were battles of the mind aren't there has your view of any novel changed markedly as a result of researching this book Ooh, that's a good question uh yeah well persuasion 
Now, listen, I, 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 I feel anxious about saying this because a lot of people would say that Persuasion is their favourite Jane Austen novel. It's the one that you graduate to. It's the one in which the characters are entering middle-aged. It's the most romantic. It's the most beautiful. It's about having a second chance at life and love. But also it's quite depressing because the heroine of Persuasion, I've always found her a bit, a bit mushy, a bit of a sort of... A bit of a, a bit of a puppet-like character, and it is true that when Jane was writing this, we're welling it well into the nineteenth century now. The role of women was shrinking. If you were a Georgian woman, it was more likely you would have been economically active. But as we get into the nineteenth century, the industrial revolution is happening. Men are beginning to be able to earn enough money to think that they need to be able to support a wife and kids at home. If you like, there's a sense that women are put into their little domestic box. And you can see some traces of that coming in, in the story of persuasion. It, it's, it's quite depressing from the sociological point of view about the role of women. So Anne, the heroine, for example, what's she going to do after she's got married? Well, Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, she was going to become the mistress of Pemberley, which is a position of great power and authority. She would have had responsibility for running things. But Anne, in um, persuasion, in this new sort of state of being, she's just going to follow her sailor husband wherever he goes. You know, she might have to go and live with him on his ship, which is considered to be uh, a good thing for a sailor's wife to do. She's much less of a sort of independent person. Mm. How how would you like this book to change people's view of Austen, the novelist, the, the person, the woman? Well, sometimes Jane Austen is used as a shorthand to mean something prim, proper, um, slightly frivolous, quintessentially British, you know, Jane Austen style. People think of tea rooms, don't they? No, this is biting social satire. Um, she's a critical, sometimes bitter, really interesting, important woman, I think. And I think that the some of the decisions she made in living her life are almost as important as the books are. Mm. Because without one, you could not have had the other. That was Lucy Worsley. Jane Austen at Home, a biography, is out now in the UK, published by Hodder and Stoughton. In the US, it's due to be published next month by St Martin's Press. And Lucy's BBC Two documentary, entitled Jane Austen Behind Closed Doors, is available to watch on BBC iPlayer until the end of June. And you can read a written version of this interview in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. This month's edition also includes pieces on Roman Britain, the Six-Day War, Letters from the Tudors, and Snap Elections, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents in the UK and around the world in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it might still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. Before our next interview, I'd like to tell you about an opportunity for you to help shape the future of our History Extra website. We're looking for regular users of the site in both the UK and US to share their thoughts with us, either in person in our London or Bristol offices or over the phone. And you'll receive Amazon vouchers for doing so. To find out more details or to apply to take part, please visit historyextra.com forward slash web survey. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Our second interview this week is with Professor Stephen Olford, a historian based at the University of Leeds. Stephen is the author of London's Triumph, Merchant Adventurers and the Tudor City, which shows how in the space of a century, London was transformed from a relative backwater to a globally focused metropolis. He spoke to our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Your new book looks at the remarkable transformation of London in the 16th century. Can you give us a picture of what London was like in 1500 and how it had changed by the end of the century? There was a huge transition and transformation over the over the course of a century. You're beginning with a city of, um, well, we can, we can estimate it best, but something like 50,000 people. Um, in in U- European terms, that's a, a pretty decent sized city, but it's nowhere near one of the largest cities um, in, in Europe. It's a long way short of, um, of Paris or, or Naples um, and the big kind of trading cities. It was very much a trading city. Uh, it was in many ways a, a, a satellite of Antwerp, just across the, the channel in the, the low countries. Antwerp was the the preeminent mercantile powerhouse of Western Europe, and that's where uh, London merchants went to to trade, to take their cloth and to uh, to buy luxury goods and spices and bring them home and so on. So it's a modest trading city. It's huge by English standards. It's it's way larger than any other town or city um, in in England. Um, a century later, that had changed. The population, so far as we can tell, had probably quadrupled. We're looking at something like 200, 250,000 people 
Uh, huge increase is a really big story of um, migration and um, immigration. And also London's um, international reach um, had changed. Still trading contacts with, uh, with the Low Countries, with um, Amsterdam, um, with France. But in, in a sense, London's reach was, um, was, was so much greater. Trade with Russia um, by the end of the 16th century, trade with Persia. English merchants were um, getting into the Far East, into the Levant, into the Ottoman Empire, um, burying into, um, into Africa, making contacts and colonies with, uh, with North America, sailing to South America, sailing all the way around the tip of Africa to get to the, the Far East. So in, in a way, it's a kind of double story. You've got um, a, a city that physically as a city is hugely changed and hugely expanded, um, but also a city whose reach and ambition and understanding of the world um, has changed considerably in, in about a century. As you suggest, um, England at the start of this period was not that important. Essentially, it was a bit of a backwater. Why do you think that there is a misconception that it was a major player on the European scene? Um, <laughs> all kinds of reasons. I think a, a, a highly Anglo-centric um, historiography, maybe, um, a tradition. Um, uh, uh, very easy to kind of look back at later kind of imperial greatness in the 18th and especially the 19th centuries and to kind of trace that back to, you know, plucky Elizabethans conquering the world. Um, but it, it, it was really backwater. It was a, it was a second or, or third rate um, power. You know, we might imagine that monarchs like Henry VIII or Henry VII were great power players of Europe, and certainly Henry VIII wanted to be a great power player um, in, in Europe. But in fact, you know, the, the, the cultural pulse um, in England in the late 15th century was um, faint, really, in comparison with, um, with most of Europe. Um, English was a, a minority language. In many ways, it was a minority language within what we understand to be the, the British Isles and, and Ireland, and certainly nobody spoke it um, beyond Calais. Um, so it, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty introspective um, kind of kind of kingdom, um, and uh, we we understand that. I think you know perhaps today in different ways we put the Tudor centre stage and we think they're wonderful and powerful and. Uh, go getting but I think the reality in the sense is is really quite different. So who were some of the key players in driving this um, massive expansion and the connections across the world? There's one character who's really interesting uh, and and highly enigmatic um, in many ways a, a, a Spaniard uh, at least um, by career uh, an Italian by birth called Sebastian Cabot. And Sebastian Cabot, for really the first decades of the of the 16th century, being engaged with his his father um, in finding uh, various routes across great oceans. Everybody wanted to find these merchants wanted to find Cathay. They wanted to find the the great empire of the 
of the East, which they believed was fabulously rich and, and wealthy. They wanted to trade with Cathay. And the Cabots had, had an ambition to get out there. They never quite got out there. They, they tentatively explored um, the edges of um, the Canadian Arctic uh, in the 1490s and early 1500s. But Sebastian Cabot kept at the project. And by the middle of the 16th century, he was in London. He'd effectively been headhunted by Edward VI's Privy Council and government. And Cabot put together a really kind of interesting team of um, London merchants and investors who are willing to pool their resources to share out risk and reward uh, and and gather a fleet to send out to to Cathay, to, to what we would understand as furthest Asia or China. So Cabot's the main player, but also with Cabot um, leading London merchants. Eventually, Tudor courtiers, privy councillors, senior people who are willing to invest their money in these adventurers. And they're backed also in a really interesting way by all kinds of well, geographers, cosmographers, theorists, um, map makers, very much kind of plugged into the European scene who are trying to kind of make sense of the furthest parts of the world uh, and are working on the the geography and the practicalities of, of navigation. So it's a coming together in many ways of a number of constituencies. Um, you know, really kind of key players like Cabot, London merchants, theorists, intellectuals, thinkers, um, but also courtiers, senior politicians who are willing to put their money um, into these ventures in the hope of profit. You suggest that these ventures into the new world had an astonishing impact, in your words, on England. Where can we see this impact? It's difficult to see some of the impact today in physical terms because London has changed so much. The Great Fire um, wiped out so much of the of the Tudor city um, in 1666. Um, so, so in a sense, had been plenty of um, you know kind of physical um, evidence of this of this changing world. Um, Places like Muscovy House on the uh, on the fantastically named Seething Lane, not very far from the the Tower of London, some of the <laughs> one of the earliest kind of global corporate headquarters um, in in London, or Sir Thomas Gresham's Royal Exchange, the exchange that um, he he built in the fifteen. 60s, which became um, London's Bourse, um, based on, modelled on the, the Great Bourse in, in Antwerp, and the place where um, merchants from all over the world gathered uh, to, uh, to trade news and information and um, to do deals. I suppose the place where we do see this changing world and the, the the effect of this kind of global endeavor on England is in terms of print, in terms of, of books. Uh, and there's a huge kind of flowering uh, from the 1560s of um, books about far-flung parts of the world. And there's a really big move from some of the earlier studies, Mandeville's travels at the end of the 15th century, which have basically been kind of travel fantasies, to 
uh, an emphasis instead on kind of eyewitness accounts of um, encounters with um, with America, with Africa, um, with the East Indies. You have writers and printers who are really kind of keen to pick up um, any possible accounts, you know, whether they're Portuguese accounts of the East Indies or French accounts of colonial efforts in um, America. And of course, kind of charting English accounts to English ventures. They're bringing together all these resources and trying to kind of present to ordinary Londoners in bookshops and on bookstalls um, new accounts of this um, of this new world. They called it they called it a new world. So an ordinary Londoner in the 16th century would have been impacted by all this? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, these these accounts were written in, in really kind of plain, exciting English, cheap print format where people could read about, you know, the, 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 uh, the pristine forests of Virginia and encounters with Native Americans or read of encounters in the in the East Indies and of long voyages. Martin Frobisher's um, famous um, voyages out into into the kind of uncharted seas of, uh, of the Canadian Arctic uh, were, were were logged in a very careful way, and Frobisher himself was a was a celebrity. You know, there are there are ballads and pamphlets and heroic poems about these Elizabethan navigators who were taking these mercantile voyages out into into far waters. And what about the new prominence of this merchant class? How did that impact on the social structure of British society? That London was hugely different um, from anywhere else in the in the kingdom, in terms of its in terms of its size and in terms of its wealth. Um, and it, there are interesting debates, contentions, controversies um, at the time in the 16th century about whether London was, in a sense, um, too powerful, too large, um, too kind of prone to uh, sucking dry the, uh, the, the, the other ports and trading towns of, uh, of, of England. You know, it, it was a, a, a leviathan. It was sucking in people and it was sucking in wealth. Um, the great chronicler of late 16th, early 17th century London was a, a guy called John Stowe. Uh, and Stowe used um, huge amounts of shoe leather uh, in walking around the city and, and recording every nook and, and cranny of the city. And it's really interesting with Stowe that you kind of get that tension. In, in one sense, Stowe was, was nostalgic about a, a city that had changed out of all recognition. He remembered going as a little boy um, and getting warm, fresh milk from a, a farm near the Tower of London. And as, as an old man in his 70s, at the turn of the 16th into the 17th century, he was bemoaning how the city was full of people and it was full of filthy housing and it was overcrowded and it was appalling. And yet at the same time, Stowe recognised that London had so much going for it in terms of its place, its preeminence, um, how close it was to the royal court, um, how important it was as a as a trading and, and business centre. So Stowe wrote this kind of apology, this defence of of London um, at the beginning of the 
the 17th century in which he said you know people may complain that you know the city is 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 too large and it sucks the rest of the kingdom dry but in fact london is the great benefit um for for the kingdom but of course all this growth and booming business wasn't without its growing pains what were some of the challenges that london faced in this period the major challenge was immigration um i I think, and there are all kinds of perhaps modern um, resonances with with this. The, the, the scale and um, pace of London's growth uh, were staggering, and, and you know they, they've not just been noticed by historians, but contemporaries were painfully aware um, of um, the, just the sheer numbers of people coming into the city. Um, some from abroad, uh, some fleeing uh, religious war. Uh, revolt, persecution um, in France, French wars of religion from the 1560s, um, or the the Low Countries, the Spanish armies um, moved to crush rebellion in the in the Netherlands. So the, there was the migration of, of foreigners, strangers um, in, into the city, which caused its own um, kinds of tensions, but also the influx of huge numbers of, of people from the countryside, especially in the late. Um, 16th century, um, when harvests were failing and, and, and times were tough and economic opportunities were dwindling in the countryside, the city kind of attracted attracted people um, in. So I think in many ways, the greatest challenge um, was, was immigration. Um, and that's something that you find kind of popping up um, as a theme um, in the some of the playhouse dramas uh, of the of the 1590s, um, and it was the cause of all kinds of tensions, worries, um, panics about uh, riot and disorder. Um, the the city elite were worried about it. They were certainly worried about strangers, foreigners um, coming in and uh, nibbling away at the the kind of uh, the, the, the protectionism, the, the, the limits placed on um, non-city, uh, non-citizens to, uh, to, to trade within the, um, within the, the city boundaries. Um, but especially the, the poor, the disenfranchised, um, apprentices, um, there were real kind of threats and uh, dangers of um, civil unrest and disorder riots on the streets. Um, so as a sense socially in which London by the 1590s, under all these kind of big pressures, it is a little bit of a, it's a bit of a powder keg. Um, and, you know, somebody is just waiting for that kind of, that, that, that final match for the whole thing to, to go up or to change the metaphor for the, the whole city kind of to, to collapse under the weight of of, of these changes. But of course, that collapse never comes uh, in a really interesting way. You mentioned the, um, the constant threat of civil unrest. What role do you think the Reformation played in England's attitude towards um, Europe, partly, and towards expanding and uh, across the world? In a sense, it means there's um, a slightly kind of ambivalent attitude um, towards um, especially foreign uh, Protestants um, coming to London, to England more generally, for um, for safety from religious persecution. There's, there's clearly a religious reason to kind of embrace them um, and, and protect them. Um, but also there are worries about the 
economic challenge that um, that migrants can present also they're also interested in converting you know natives the infidel they talk about converting the 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 infidel whether in north america through kind of colony and um trade or whether in the east indies so there's a very kind of protestant brand of um, missionary activity that's really kind of closely identified with trading ambitions also. So it's kind of, um, it's God and money, <laughs> you know, in, in working together um, in, a, in a really interesting way. And what impact did importing all these goods from across the world have on London and on England? Would it be fair to say that it helped make the nation more of a consumerist society? What we see even fairly early on in in this whole process, um, is an increasingly increasing kind of link between um, between money and consumption. Um, there's one example in Thomas Gresham's Exchange, the Royal Exchange, um, which was part bourse. It, it was part kind of trading floor, merchants meeting, bills of exchange, transferring money across Europe. You know, very much kind of high mercantile business. But it was also in part a shopping centre. And it was an elite shopping centre uh, in which those who held shops, who kept shops in the um, in the exchange, um, paid a huge kind of rent um, to Gresham for the privilege. Um, and you could buy all kinds of um, luxury items um, and, and really kind of, you know, sort of high end consumer um, items um, in the in the exchange, um, custom made suits of armour uh, and uh sort of luxury fabrics and all sorts of things, along with books. Um, so it, it is interesting to see how just on the Royal Exchange, you can see this kind of meeting of um, this kind of international world of, of, of money and the idea of just kind of hanging out to shop. Uh, people would go to the Royal Exchange and they'd listen to, to music um, on long spring and, and summer evenings and uh, fashionable gentlemen would uh, would dine their friends at the nearby castle tavern so you've got this place which is kind of part shopping center um you know pointing at those consumerist tendencies you know sort of display luxury consumption along with money and and trade and politics We've spoken a lot about the impact of these global connections on London, but can we trace any impact of London exported across the world in this period? I think there's an image of London um, exported a, a, across the world. Now, whether that that was ever done, you know, absolutely successfully is is a is a, a a different a different question there's an emphasis there on on making sure that any image of london any picture of the river thames um is is shown full of ships to to show what a, a trading power um london was and the, the second example in a way is similar to that there's a guy called um anthony jenkinson jenkinson i, I think is one of my favorite characters in the book really um he's kind of straight out of um, straight out of john buchan he's a kind of richard hannay um kind of kind of character fearless and imperturbable you know, kind of fighting his his way across across asia uh, and jenkinson uh, made contact in persia with um the shah slightly kind of prickly 
audience um, with with the Shah, and he presented um, Elizabeth I's royal letters to the Shah with a long description of um, of of London as a as a trading city. So I think certainly there's there's a there's an ambition or an image of an ambitious London that's kind of being put out there. Now, quite how these great far powers responded, that's possibly a different a different kind of kind of issue. But I think the ambition of London to kind of plant itself kind of in the in the imagination um, of these, you know, distant potentates um, is really quite a powerful one. That was Stephen Alford. London's Triumph, Merchant Adventurers and the Tudor City is out now, published by Alan Lane. And now let's rejoin Ellie for this week's History News. Stonemasons have discovered a series of underground vaults at Blenheim Palace. The vaults were unexpectedly uncovered during restoration work on the north steps of the 18th century stately home, which is the birthplace of Winston Churchill. Richard Bowden, Blenheim's historic buildings and conservation surveyor, called the discovery a surprise. He stated that the purpose of the vaults was not apparent, but further investigations are set to take place. In other news, a 118-year-old painting by a British explorer has been discovered in a hut in the Antarctic. The watercolour of a small bird was painted by Dr Edward Wilson, the chief scientist on Captain Robert Scott's ill-fated expedition to the South Pole. Along with Scott and three others, Wilson died on the return journey. The well-preserved painting, which depicts a tree creeper, was discovered under a bunk tightly packed among a collection of papers. Meanwhile, the Queen has marked the 175th anniversary of the first ever train journey made by a British monarch by recreating the historic trip along the same route. On the 13th of June 1842, Queen Victoria became the first reigning royal to travel by train on a 30-minute trip from Slough to London Paddington. Victoria enjoyed the new experience, describing the journey as delightful and so quick. The motion was very slight and much easier than a carriage. Also, no dust or great heat. Okay, well, that's it for this week, but please do join us next time when we're going to be talking about the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.